Good morning, everyone. Good to see everyone here. It's still the morning time, so thanks for coming out this morning to Northbrook. Uh, we're going to talk this morning about lessons from Jericho, um, from Joshua chapter 6. So if you've got a Bible with you, if you want to turn to Joshua chapter 6, and we're going to look at the story of Jericho, which I'm sure the children, as well as the adults, perhaps are very familiar with. We know that much of the Bible and its historical accounts are related very closely to geography. Sometimes it's rivers, sometimes it's mountains, and perhaps the valleys. And a lot of biblical teaching is also related to cities. We can think of uh, the city of Jerusalem. It's rich in what it has to tell us then, now, and also in the future. We can also think of Babylon, Nineveh, and many other cities in the Bible which uh, we can think about and learn lessons from. But this morning, I want us to think for not very long, hopefully, the city of Jericho. It doesn't feature a great deal in Scripture, but it does turn up in the Old Testament here in Joshua, especially the children of Israel have crossed the River Jordan. They are taking the promised land. They've spent many years in the wilderness, but they're advancing now to take the land that God had promised to them. And Jericho was the first great imposing city that they faced, the first great challenge as they advanced into the promised land. The city was then destroyed, as we're going to read, but it was rebuilt, and it comes up in the New Testament, and I'll maybe mention that as well. There's lessons from the city of Jericho that can help us to be victorious in Christian living and encourage us in our Christian faith. You know, in the previous chapter, Joshua chapter 5, we're not going to read it, but take some time, we can see Joshua... There is the commander of the armies of Israel. And when he was beside Jericho and, and measuring up its massive walls, he got a sight of the captain of the Lord of hosts. And under his command, he had confidence that victory was going to be assured for the children of Israel. And you win the Christian life with all its struggles, conflicts. It's important to have an apprehension appreciation of the greatness of the captain of our salvation and that he can give us help in the fight that lies ahead for each one of us. You know, the Christian life isn't a picnic. You don't become a Christian and become saved and everything's a bed of roses. That's when the fight and the war begins. And the book of Joshua tells us about the, the wars and the, the conquests of the children of Israel as they advanced into the promised land and took the, the fruitful land that God had promised to them. And that's the same in our Christian experience. So we'll read in Joshua chapter 6. I probably will read quite a few verses, so we'll read them quickly. I hope you can understand my accent. So Joshua chapter 6, verse, verse 1 to start with. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, with its king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city and all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, and everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. 
And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord, with, with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. And the armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark. And the trumpets blew continually, but Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make voice heard, neither any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about at once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Verse 12, then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually, and the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned onto the camp, and so they did for six days. And on the seventh day they rose early, and at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. And it was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city that all that is within shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in the house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you yourselves keep yourselves from things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all the silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout. And the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house, and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her, as you swore to her or made an oath. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her, and they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And that's us. Thank you for, for listening to that long, longer passage. So this morning, the key challenge for, for us all in this chapter is to obey the orders of the captain. No matter how all the orders may first appear, if there was ever an unusual chapter in the history of military engagement or strategy, this is it. This chapter that we have read, it was a very strange orders that were given to Joshua as a captain of the armies of Israel. 
Have you ever seen anything like it? A group of men who were ready for war. This was their first major war, I guess, have left uh, the wilderness after many years of wandering and disobeying God. They've crossed over the Jordan. This is their first big battle. And they're all hyped up for a great battle. But God ordered them to blow trumpets and walk around the city of ancient Jericho. It seemed nonsensical. It seemed crazy and absurd. Yet whenever they obeyed the orders of the captain, they cruised to victory. And I want us to learn just four brief lessons. The first, I want us to look at the the city of Jericho evangelically and to learn a message of evangelism from it. Now, we do appreciate this chapter. Many of us over the years, I'm sure, have heard the message on Rahab, the prostitute or harlot. And in the midst of that judgment, we read of one person and her family trusting God and getting saved. And that is where we see the grace of God with all the inhabitants of this ungodly city and fortress. Can you think of one person that was more unworthy, a more unlikely candidate? Rahab the prostitute who lived on the wall of the city. And so we don't miss that point. I don't know if you, if you appreciate it. I was reading quite fast, but three times in that passage, three times we are told that the lady that was saved, called Rahab, was saved from judgment. We read that she was a harlot, she was a Gentile, and a Canaanite. So God is emphasizing to us the importance of this person, Rahab. And this should be important for us as Christians to hold on to. We too are Gentiles, those of us who are are not Jews, obviously. We're depraved, and yet the grace of God spared each one of us. And pray, God, we don't take for granted the amazing grace which saved a wretch like me. You you think of the security of the grace that was shown to Rahab here in this chapter. You know, it's clear as crystal in the book of Joshua. Uh, Those of you who know the story well, if you don't, I would advise reading back to Joshua 1 and just reading a few chapters to refresh your minds. You know, if you go back, you'll learn in Joshua chapter 2 that God sent, or Joshua sent, spies into the city of Jericho to spy out the land. And there was two men that came into the city of Jericho and they approached, they approached Harlot, the, or they approached Rahab the prostitute. And we read that the fear of the Lord had fallen upon Rahab. We read that she told those men that she had heard about how God had dried up the Red Sea and looked after the children of Israel. We read how that She said to those men, I know that the Lord has given you this land. So to my mind, here was a woman who knew that judgment was coming. She knew that this city was going to be overthrown. And she knew that God, the God of Israel, was in control. And in my mind, maybe I'm wrong, this was a woman who had already repented and turned from her sin. She realized that judgment was coming and she turned away and she agreed with God and she wanted to take his side. You know, I'm sure that Rahab risked her life and the life of her family by taking those spies into her home. And if you read the story that she actually hid them in the roof whenever the people came to find and look for them, she actually hid them in the roof and let them out the window. And it's amazing to think that the promise that those men gave to Rahab that they would be back and that she would be saved as she would simply obey the word of God, which was this, which was to put a scarlet cord out her window 
and to bring all of her family into that little, into that little room on the wall of the city. And the promise they confirmed with an oath that was very clear and it's amazing to know that that oath was fulfilled and honored to the absolute letter. You know, the grace of God, there's absolute security with it. You know, some people think salvation is something which comes and goes, but the grace of God, there's absolute security with it. The oath of God stood strong, and we can depend on the promises of God today, just like Rahab depended and realized that God is true to his word back in Joshua chapter 6. You know, I was thinking about the passage and I wondered, did Rahab ever look out that w- window of her, of, her, of her house in the wall of Jericho? Did she ever look out and wonder and ponder, will those boys who told me about salvation, will they ever come back? You know, those two spies, they give her an oath and a promise and then they left. I wonder, did she look out that window and wonder, will they ever come back? She looked out of the walls of that city, scanning the horizon, looking for their return. Will they ever keep their word? You know, it wasn't long until the door of her, of her home had a knock and the man who promised they would return had come the second time. You know, the promise those men gave her was fulfilled at their second coming. You know, it's the same for us. He came the first time and left us promises, promises that are marked with his precious blood. And he told us that he's going to come back again, and he will without fail. The Lord Jesus has given us promises that he's coming back, and we too can look on the horizon and know that he will keep his word and that he will come back without fail. There's another feature of grace here. It's not only the security of grace, but you know, they brought her out from judgment. The Bible clearly tells us that Rahab and her entire family who were brought into that, that wall, that home on the wall of Jericho, it tells us that they were all saved from judgment. They weren't only saved from judgment, but it, they just didn't leave her there. The Bible passage at the end, I think it's verse 25, tells us that they dwell in Israel to this day. So she wasn't only brought out from judgment, she was brought in, into the family of God. She came as a Gentile and was brought into the people of God. She lived in Israel to that day. And if you read on in the scripture, you also read that she was actually brought into the line of the Messiah, into the messianic line. Isn't that amazing that Rahab, this most unlikely person, was saved, not only left there, but she was brought into the family of God or into the the fold of Israel, and she became a person who was instrumental in the messianic line, in the birth of the Savior. What a place of privilege. Those of us who are believers today, the Bible tells us to as many as receive him, to them give he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. So we are part of the family of God. What a place of privilege. Let me ask you this morning, are you in the family of God? Are you a child of God? Or are you, as the Bible tells us as well, a child of wrath? Are you someone that has not repented and are you still in danger of falling under the wrath of God? You know, Rahab saw 
the wrath of God was coming. And she turned away and repented. And she was saved from that and brought into the family of God. You know, that is salvation. That is repentance. You know, Luke chapter 18, I think, is a good depiction of repentance with the two men going up to pray. With one man who's a Pharisee, and he says, I thank God that I'm not like other people. He was proud. He didn't need God in his life. And then with the other tax collector, and he came along and said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He smote his chest and he looked down because he knew hell was where he deserved to be. And he agreed with God, and that is repentance, turning away from your sin, agreeing with God, and putting your faith in the finished work of Christ. That's what Rahab did. So let me ask you again, are you a child of God? You know, some people here might think, uh, Rahab was a pretty sketchy person, but you don't know my past. You don't know uh, what I've done in the past. You might think, God might not find me important enough. Do you know, no one here is beyond, beyond the reach of God. His grace reached Rahab, and his grace can reach anyone here. I was actually just thinking of an interesting connection between Joshua and Jericho, and I'll mention it very briefly. For those of you who are keen, read from Joshua 1 to chapter 10. In chapter 10, you'll read about how Joshua is advancing further into the promised land, and they're in another battle against the Amorites. So the Amorites basically is the, the kingdom of the Amorites. Was, Jericho was part of that kingdom, and they were a very evil people. But it was one of the battles in Joshua chapter 10. The children of Israel were winning. They had the enemy on the back foot. But Joshua noticed that the daylight was fast disappearing. And does anyone know what happened? Yep, the sun stood still. So Joshua basically, he believed God could do it, and he asked the sun in the sky to stand still. And God honored his, his requests, and he made the sun stand still in the sky. The creator of the universe intervened in the galactic orbits, and the sun stood still in the sky so the children of Israel could com- continue their battle and win. And they did win that battle. But fast forward 1,500 years or thereabout, to Mark chapter 10, I think it is. Yep, Mark, Mark chapter 10. There was another person sitting by the walls of Jericho. Does anyone know who it was? Mark chapter 10. There was a, Bartimaeus was lying by the walls of Jericho and he was, he was someone that was marginalized, someone that no one cared about. He was a beggar and Jerusalem, or Jericho was now rebuilt And it's in Mark chapter 10, we read that Jesus was passing by, and it was actually going to be his last time passing through Jericho. So this was was Bartimaeus' last chance. And it tells us that Bartimaeus, obviously blind, he said, Son of David, have mercy on me. And there was great crowds there to see Jesus, and his his cry, I'm sure, was feeble and was being drowned out, but he was, he was persistent and he kept crying, Son of David, have mercy on me. And I, I love that verse. I think it's verse 49. It tells us this. It says, Jesus stood still. Jesus stood still. So Jesus stopped for a beggar like Bartimaeus. Here's one person that the world would say was insignificant, marginalized, and not care about. But Jesus stopped for that beggar. 
by the walls of Jericho. This same city that we're talking about in Joshua chapter 6. So let me ask you this. What was a greater day in the history of this world? When the sun stood still in the sky for the armies of Israel to win that battle, whenever God intervened as the creator in a marvelous way, or was it a greater day in Mark chapter 10, whenever the Son of God, not the sun in the sky, the Son of God stood still for Bartimaeus? You know, that tells me that God cares about everyone. It doesn't matter what your background is, it doesn't matter uh, what, what you think you've done in the past, or if you think you're insignificant, it doesn't matter what your job is, your, your neck income, if you've got a house or you don't have a house, it doesn't matter. Rahab was reached by the grace of God, and Rahab can reach you this morning in Northbrook Hall. So remember, God cares. That is how much he cares about each one of us. And it's amazing to think that if you today, like Rahab, repent of your sin, you can become a child of God. So that's what we see evangelically in the city of Jericho, the amazing story of Rahab, the prostitute. And we can learn that God can save anyone, anyone in this world. You know, I want to think, as, think very quickly as time's going on. I want us to think of the chapter historically. You know, this story of Jericho has borne the brunt of a lot of he- heavy criticism over the years, much like Um, A lot of history, a lot of these old ancient cities are thought about by archaeologists. Lots of digs go on to find about what happened, these ancient civilizations and the Amorites. And they've long claimed that this story of Jericho and the collapsing of the walls was a nice piece of Jewish folklore. It was a story to tell by the fireside. And it made the Israelites look very smart militarily. But did it actually really happen? Did the walls fall, fall down and out like the biblical account says? A lot of people say it's just a piece of fiction. You know, if you look it up online, I was going to do a PowerPoint, but it was too lazy. There was a couple called F.G. Kenyon and his wife, Kathleen, and they were very smart linguists and archaeologists. In the 1950s, they excavated around Jericho and claimed it had been destroyed. They agreed with the biblical account. But they claimed they claimed evidence that the walls had fallen. However, they said that it happened around 1550 BC and that it had been destroyed by the Egyptians according to their timeline. They also claimed the Israelites came 100 years later and that no one was living there when the Israelites came. So they're basically saying the biblical account was false. They claimed that it had no historical foundation and this couple took great joy in directing blows at the biblical account. You know, in the 1980s, there was a man called Bryant Wood, and he took up the cause again. And around the Mound of Jericho, he reviewed and developed some of the jigs. He looked at the maps, the history, and it's not that we need archaeology to confirm the Bible or refute it, but I think it is helpful and it's nice to know. And he discovered, this guy Wood, he discovered that Kathleen was mistaken in her calculations, mistaken by a hundred years or thereabouts. And this brought forward the history of Jericho and the timeline he settled on when Jericho was leveled was the very date that corresponds to the biblical account when the children of Israel entered Canaan. And he also discovered in his digs that the walls had actually fallen out 
which was unheard of in siege warfare. Whenever a city was being seized in olden times, they would use battering rams and the walls would usually go in. But they found that the walls had actually come out. And not only that, whenever they were excavating the cities, they found in the cellars that there was great urns and containers full of grain. And this was very unusual. Usually in a seed setting, that all the food in the city would be completely consumed. There would not be one grain of barley or wheat left. It would all be eaten up. But there was barrels and barrels and containers and containers of grain found in the basements of that city. You know, the biblical account tells us the walls fell out. It tells us it wasn't a long siege. We know it was only seven days. And it also tells us they came up into Canaan at the beginning of barley harvest. So everything adds up. And that discovery at the time actually gained worldwide attention. I'm probably too young for that. But Time magazine, and most of us know what that is, it's a big magazine all across the world. Everyone reads it. You see it in the airports. You see it in lounges. They had it in their front cover. And it said this on the front cover of Time magazine in 1990. It said, score one for the Bible. So it's basically acknowledging that the Bible got the upper hand. I actually looked at it on Google as well. The New York Times also had an article in their front page. And again, they all agreed that the Bible was correct. You know, that just affirms to me that the Bible is absolutely true to fact. And we don't need one of the most widely read secular magazines to affirm this, but that was nice. Score one for the Bible. And no matter what doubts or casts, attacks are made, the Word of God will come out on top every time. And I just thought it was amazing to think that these people in the 1950s that were discrediting the Bible, they were hugely accomplished, but they spent decades pouring their life, blood, sweat, and tears, digging around Jericho, trying to prove a point. A lifetime of research and effort. And in the end, they just caught up with the Bible. It was actually ahead of them all the time. Isn't that amazing to think? So evangelically, more, uh, historically, and I want us now to think morally. There's one of the verses in the account, I'm sure there was a couple of eyebrows raised when I read it. Verse 21, they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep, with the age of the sword. It was wholesale slaughter, the destruction of Jericho. That is quite uncomfortable reading. And in the past, this account and others have been raised up in a very derogatory way. How do we defend or answer the acts of God here in Joshua chapter 6? Serious objections could be raised. Is this not a blatant example of genocide or one of the most blood-drenched examples of ethnic cleansing that you've ever heard? And people might say, if that's the God of the Bible, we want nothing to do with it. You know, if we're going to complain and vent about the slaughter of people in the Old Testament and complain about the moral injustice, we have to be very careful. We, we are the world that has allowed Rwanda. We are the world that has stood by and tolerated Darfur and countless other heinous acts in history. Where our nations in the West particularly send unborn babies to incinerators through abortion 
in untold thousands every month. So before we criticize the Bible for being intolerant of human life, we need to make sure, very sure that our own house is clean. Our Western nations have held life very lightly. So people might say, how does the God of the Bible allow the slaughter of masses of people? Like, first of all, Jericho wasn't like Halifax or New York. Jericho was an ancient city, and historians tell us that it was probably around six acres in size, so not, not massive. And it probably was a glorified rural village, but at the time, it was an important military power in the, in the kingdom of the Amorites. Hard to say how many people lived or inhabited it, but I'm sure it was, could have been several thousand, might have been only 2,000, I don't know, that's all speculation. But whether there were thousands or hundreds of innocent people slaughtered, I don't know the exact number. Did I just say the word innocent? Innocent people, you might say. Well, let me suggest to you, if you read the, the, some of the, the books in the Bible, such as Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you will learn that the inhabitants of Jericho, which was part of the Amorite kingdom, they were likely some of the most depraved, wicked, wretched, vile, godless people that lived upon planet Earth. They were responsible for the grossest form of child abuse. Children had their bones broken in the worship of paganism and the occult. The deepest of evils. So the Bible paints a very grim picture of the Canaanite practices. You read Leviticus and Deuteronomy. There's lurid lists there, worship of idols, the sacrifice of children to the Canaanite gods. It's all there. And history confirms it was a very, very dark empire, a very dark civilization. You know, that, that civilization was so, so wicked that God said time was up. It is time to excise these people from world civilization. Something similar to the flood, I guess. Their time was up. And let us pause and think, God just didn't send his armies into Jericho and not give them a chance. Those of you who know your Old Testament, if you go back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, it tells us this. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God back in Genesis, 400 years earlier, denotes and highlights that they're very wicked, but their time has not yet come. Isn't that amazing? He gave them another 400 years. Even back in Genesis, their practices were vile and repulsed God, but he was merciful and long-suffering. He gave them 400 years to repent and change from their wicked ways. But that 400 years is now up, and although his judgment is severe, nothing escapes. But remember this, his judgment was not swift. It was long-suffering, and it waited 400 years. And let me ask you this. Why do you think God just didn't send in the, the Israelites straight away and collapse the walls? Why do you think he got the armies of Israel to march around with the Ark of the Covenant for those six days, and then the seventh day they went around a number of more times? I believe this was God giving the people of, of Jericho, he was giving them a last chance. It wasn't to take the city, it was God's last gesture of grace. I do believe on that last day, 
on the very last time they went around the city and marched. I do believe if, if Jericho had opened their gates on the seventh day and repented of their evil wickedness, that God would have spared every soul that breathed right to the age of judgment because he is a God that is long-suffering. And this, this story is really God going the extra mile to see if the people of Jericho, after 400 years, if they're going to surrender. And maybe there's someone here in this audience and you've been testing God for many, many years. Maybe you too are on the edge of judgment. Turn now while there's still time. Turn in repentance toward God and put your faith in the finished work of Christ. You know, this account should serve to overwhelm us all and teach us that our God is long-suffering and not willing that any should perish, even the vile people of Jericho. He gave them 400 years. He gave them 13 appeals around the city. And he also saved Rahab. Rahab was saved. You know, not one inhabitant of that city in the last day of judgment will be able to point a finger at God. He gave them so much. He was long-suffering and merciful right until the very end. And you know, perhaps God will, on the day of judgment, point to that lady and say, do you know this lady? And they'll all recognize her as the, as the prostitute from the wall of the city and who ran the brothel. And God will say, whenever I saved her, I could have saved any of you. She is a sample of my saving grace. And take, take this sin-drenched world that we live in. Surely we're reaching saturation point and God has held back long enough. He has been merciful and gracious. And it's amazing that he is still waiting, waiting for those to come in repentance. So is this a moral dilemma, this wholesale slaughter of Jericho? You know, I propose to you this is not a ruthless God venting his anger in an uncontrolled, rash, unkind way. This is a righteous God who is holy. He's aflame with righteousness, and he has waited 400 years. He has given the children or the, the inhabitants of Jericho 13 final appeals, and he saved the worst person in the city. He's done everything he could to try and save the inhabitants of this city. So this is God executing judgment when wicked people leave him with absolutely no alternative. So I think the case is closed. We have a God who is merciful and gracious and who must judge sin, but will do everything he can to save rebel sinners. So we've thought about it evangelically, historically, morally. We have a God who is righteous and long-suffering. And finally, Practically, you know, I don't know what Jericho might be in your pathway. The children of Israel couldn't get into the fruitful upper lands of, of the promised land until they conquered Jericho. It was there as an imposing city. It was there as one great blockage to progress. Built by man, constructed by human opposition. If we're going to get into the higher planes of Christian living, or experience. There are obstacles that have to be overcome and city walls that have to come down and to be conquered. You know, Jericho in some ways represents the world. It's a great city under an organized king. This world is a great system that is under the prince of darkness. Everything lies in his grip and in his grasp. 
And it's all constructed to dazzle us, distract us, keeping us from getting to the enjoyment of what God intends us to have. Just like Jericho was there as a great blockage to progress as the children of Israel were advancing into the promised land to those fruitful areas that God had promised for them. Well, how did, how did the children of Israel conquer Jericho? Was it bows and arrows? Was it, was it missiles? Was it rams? The Bible clearly tells us that they conquered it through faith. Through faith, the walls of Jericho came down. And in verse 1, we have a challenge to faith. Just as the children of Israel crossed Jordan, four miles from the river, it tells us that Jericho was shut up and none came in or out. So Jericho battened down the hatches and the children of Israel were not able to get any further. You know, I find it interesting that Jericho only tensed up when the children of Israel pushed into new ground. They didn't care when the children of Israel were in the wilderness. Life went on as normal. They didn't care when the children of Israel were beyond the River Jordan. But whenever they crossed the Jordan and came into the promised land and started advancing, Jericho tensed up. When they broke new ground, the people of Jericho realized these people mean business and are taking God seriously and they're moving forward. And it was their progress that provoked the opposition of Jericho. Whenever we set our hearts on making progress for God, we won't have taken the first kilometer until we realize there's an obstacle like the wall of Jericho. Faith will have a challenge. And when we are on the path of faith, God sometimes seems to bring his people by a way that seems to be difficult, a difficult route. And these difficulties test our faith. And these difficulties provide God an opportunity to display what he can do. Let us trust God, even though the path of faith can sometimes be unusual. God will take us by the hand, take us across Jordan, and take us up to those imposing walls of Jericho to teach us how weak we are and how mighty he is. You know, I think it's amazing in verse 2 of the chapter, just put yourself in Joshua's shoes a moment. Here's a, a man who's never probably killed someone in his life. He's never held a sword. They've been in, they've been in the wilderness for years. And God tells him as they stand and look, at the walls of Jericho, God tells him this. Verse two, see, I have given Jericho into your hand. Just imagine that. This is a huge city with imposing walls and, Jericho, and Joshua's probably, he's probably trembling at his knees and God tells him, I have given Jericho into your hand as if it's already happened. Those walls were standing strong and were menacing Joshua. A brick hadn't moved at this point. There wasn't a hint or a sign that Jericho was about to collapse. And the only thing that Joshua had to cling on to, what was it? The only thing Joshua at this point could cling on to was the bare word of God. That's all he had, nothing else. The bare word of God. God said, see, I have given Jericho into your hand. There was no outward signs, there was no... There was no flashing lights. There was no dreams or visions. It was just the bare word of God. And that's what Joshua and the children of Israel did. They obeyed God and trusted his word. And perhaps it seemed counterintuitive. Perhaps it seemed a bit foolish, but 
They just obeyed God. They marched around the walls. It seemed, it seemed a bit crazy. Ram's horns go round once every day for the first six days and then a few more times the last. It's a bit odd, but they took the orders and they obeyed the word of God and they saw the mighty power of God in the end. The walls of Jericho came tumbling down. You know, when all was said and done, no one said that Joshua was a shrewd operator or commander. Everyone said, to God be the glory. And it was done in such a way that all the credit went to the Lord alone. And you know, the Ark of the Covenant with the blue cloth was there in the middle with armies in the front and armies at the back. The Lord was at the center of that victory. And if we want to see Jericho's destroyed in our lives, symbolically, of course, if we want to see mountains moved, we need to keep marching and making progress and having Christ at the center and above all, clinging on to the bare word of God and just obeying it even, even at times when it seems foolish, just obeying the word of God and trusting God. You know, I just thought there's just one way to summarize the secret to victory in this chapter and Nick emailed me last night saying, was there a song you wanted to sing? And I thought, there's one song that very simply summarizes the lessons from this chapter for me. And this, this is the first verse. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way but to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. So that's what the children of Israel did. That's what Joshua did. They basically took the bare word of God and they trusted it and they obeyed. So thank you for listening. I'll close in prayer and then we'll sing it. Father God, we thank you for uh, the Old Testament and many things we can learn, not only about uh, your son. Uh, we can learn much for our own lives as we, uh, as we seek to make progress in our Christian lives and seek to be more like your son. We thank you for the city of Jericho and the lessons we can learn from it. And we think of many connections with the New Testament and even with your son. Uh, we thank you for these lessons that we have learned from reading your word this morning. We pray that you'll help us all to cling to the bare word of God and to trust and obey. And we just pray for anyone here uh, this, this morning or afternoon who is not yet a child of God, that they will realize that Rahab, even in that horrible place that she was in life, and with her background in history, God was able to reach out and save, save her there in that city of Jericho. And no one here is beyond the, re the, the reach or the grace of God. And we thank you that your salvation is willing and able to save anyone who comes to you. So we just pray for each and every one here today. Bless us all. And as we would sing now and plan to leave, we ask for your blessing upon each one of us in your son's blessed name. Amen.